This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Darumbul people and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and Australia, the modern nation, has never come to terms with the atrocities done to Indigenous people following European arrival. Well may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. You know I've searched my heart to prove There's better ways to push and pull Hey, whatever gets you through these days Hello and welcome to Well May We Say, a progressive podcast about Australian politics. This is episode 125 Friday, 24th of April, 2020. I'm Jeremy Sear, and each week I'll be joined by a different guest host. Tell me, discuss what's just been happening to the country, what's likely to happen, and hopefully we can do about it. Tonight's guest host is returning guest host, Brandon Silich. Welcome back, Brandon. Hello, how's it going? Much the same as it has been for the last month and a half. <laughs> we just... I, I haven't moved. We're stuck. There's I don't know, cobwebs attaching me to this chair. I think you, you're you're enduring the, uh, one, one of the special things or you've just yesterday i think endured one of the special things which still gets to continue during this time of pandemic when everybody is hunkered down quarantined in their homes trying not to spread the virus but real estate agents still have the power to force themselves into everybody's homes and just walk from home to home entering but they do it one at a time so so they're practicing social distancing but they come into homes breathe on things well actually they weren't doing that last yesterday yes we did have a rental inspection but it was done via zoom Oh, you did a Zoom one because I had so, had some friends who also had one yesterday, uh, and this one was one where they were trying to sell the house, so they were letting members of the public in, and they're like, "It's fine because it's just one at a time." The government's happy with that, but like that's still strangers coming into your house. Yep. But you had yours. Yours did it by Zoom. Well, that's yes. that's at least you know, it, that's intrusive, but they can't spread the virus through. Yes. Zoom. So my my wife wandered around with the phone, like just showing them everything, and you know, please focus on that. Let's look at that. Okay, thank you. So. Annoying, but at least it was handled responsibly. Okay. Well, that's, that's a positive. Mm. Uh, nonetheless, I mean, it's still an outrage that they can do that. They can force, force you to do that rather than being a... I mean, obviously, if you want to report something, then that's fine. But the bit mm. where they get to, you know, in, invade your home... Anyway, I've got to be in my bonnet about that. Mm. Um, but the bit where, they, where they, can still, they can still do it... So yours was doing it by Zoom, but they still actually have the power... At the mm. moment, to send an agent in Victoria, they certainly do, and I'm pretty sure mm. Queensland was looking at, at uh, winding that back in the real estate lobby up there, as well as the one down here. Mm. The Victorian government was going to stop them doing the rental inspections with members of the public, mm. and the real estate industry chucked the wobbly and mm. threatened to evict tenants and jack up rents or whatever it is that they always threaten, and they folded. Yeah, well, there was going to be no no inspections of rental properties or properties for sale. There was going to be a lockdown on rent and mortgage repayments, and there was going to be a lockdown on any evictions over this period. And then these lobby groups have basically said, well, no, that reduces our power by way too much of a factor. Don't do it. And so the various state governments capitulated. Which is freaking infuriating. I've, mm. I, look, this, this annoyed me enough that I wrote to my local member, because um, I'm like, how does it make any sense during a pandemic that real estate industry... Um, the, the, the agents can, and it's it's never like the senior people at the real estate um, agency either. Like it's their their young staff that they send for rental inspections, and so those poor staff are sent from house to house to house to house to house, and you know no matter how 
it's not outbreak. They're not wearing the full-on, you know, contamination gear for... They're just ordinary people. Even if they had a mask on, it's a great way to spread disease from home to home. Mm. Yeah. And then, um, so I had some friends who had a, had a, had a real estate one uh, for, for the uh, people who were looking at selling the house. And they had members of the public. And they so they're supposed to be having this um, social distancing thing where they're not, and people are supposed to be, um, they're supposed to be spraying and having their mouths covered and everything. They had a camera that they'd left in their house to keep an eye on what was happening. And when they came back and they found that people had just been going around. The real estate agent hadn't been monitoring it properly. And people had just been going around, touching things, going to places they weren't supposed to go mm. in their home. People in a modern setting really don't understand what quarantine means. Yeah, well, and also the people who set the rules about what real estate agents can do to tenants uh, don't really consider what that would mean if it was done to them. Yes. I don't think any of the people making this decision are tenants, and I don't think they've really occurred. it's occurred to them, you know, what if the bank was able to do that with your house because, you know, it's the security for the mortgage? Ugh. What if the bank could send somebody through your house, strangers through your house every six months? Mm. Nobody would put up with it. Uh, well. <laughs> the idea is that tenants are... A, they wouldn't. Mm. The idea is that tenants are, are a second class. Like, if you push it too hard, you'll get somebody come back with, well, they should own a house then if they don't like that. Yeah, this is a punishment you get for not being in a position to own a house. Screw you, poor person. <laughs> Actually, we've got some friends who are also moving to the country, um, and the rents up there are higher than uh, than a mortgage payment would be in, in, this, in this rural area. Mm. But the bank is, you know, obviously they have to pay rent, which would be more than the mortgage payments would be. But the bank's like, no, no, you can't. We don't think you can afford the mortgage payments. It's like, but have to pay like $600 a month more for the rent. Like, how, how, how is it you think I can afford one but not the other? Doesn't make any sense. Anyway, that's not the big thing from today. The, the, the current plan about the COVID-19 is the government's trying to get us to download this um, or when they, when they finally launch it. This app. So, have you been following the developments in relation to the government's coronavirus tracing app? Oh yes, and uh, I think really all I can really need to say about it is that the man in charge of it is Stuart Robert. Yeah, look, it's not a good start. No. <laughs> I mean, look. I mean, do I have to go any further than that, really? It's kind of a sad thing that the technology is there that could potentially, if we had trustworthy, competent governments, maybe there would have been a way to make this work and be helpful. Mm. But the problem is that we don't live in that world. No. Not only do none of us trust the government not to track us, because it all takes a stroke of a pen to change their mind, even if they say now that they won't. Also, we're aware that they've passed laws last year, the Libs and the ALP passed laws last year, making it a criminal offence for anybody who's asked to put backdoors in these sorts of things to even reveal it. So mm. why would we trust that they don't have a backdoor in it when they've specifically criminalised anyone who might whistleblow? Like, mm, exactly. why should we trust you when you've made it a crime for us to find out what's happening? Mm. You can do that. Apparently you have the power to do that. But there's no reason why anybody who's not a gullible dupe would trust you on it. Mm. So it's, it's this ironic situation where they're... They have specifically granted themselves so many powers in such a corrupt way that there's no way that anybody who's not a complete idiot would trust them, mm. even at the best of times. And the fact that it's telling that basically a bunch of MPs already said last week, well, we wouldn't download the app. Yes. So certain certain MPs within the government won't aren't going to comply with this, so why should anyone else? And I think those MPs probably, when they realised that it was uh, Stuart Robert in charge, probably went, oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, also any of the technique, like... There's a whole lot of technical problems with it in the first place because it requires the, the way that, as I understand it, the way that the Bluetooth, the, ma the matching thing works, you have to have your phone on 
and 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 like the screen on everything like because otherwise and yeah apple i've got and, it speci- yeah specifically in front of me in regards to that because i think apple and google have to they, they haven't yet but they would have to unlock the ability for the bluetooth to work yeah when it's when your phone's off and yeah yeah apple's got safeguards within its ios to stop data leaking out over bluetooth so for it to work on an iphone it has to users overseas reported the phone needs to be on unlocked with the app open and in focus so basically you got to be holding got to have the app open on your phone unlocked with the bluetooth switched on for the app to work at all it won't work in the background because of the security protocols apple have put in place which is good you want those security protocols in place mm. but it basically means the app as the government wants it to work won't work and i don't know that i really want uh, we don't have any reason to trust either the companies involved or the government but if they remove those restrictions that are there for our own protection mm. like once they remove those why would we trust that that, that won't I mean, that they won't exploit it, that other people won't exploit it. Oh, and the other, of course, massive bl- further blow to the app, um, which, of course, doesn't work unless you have... The government reckons 40% um, of people using it. Uh, I think I've seen other estimates that you would really need 60% for it to be have much, much value. I'd seen as high as 70, but yeah. But yeah, 60 to 70%. But even separate to all that, did you see that they're also... The data that the government was going to keep, they're going to keep on Amazon. Amazon service in the US. Yeah, which, again, highlights that, okay, so every so often this government, like, during the course of this crisis, the government has made, oh, we will do this good thing in the worst possible way imaginable. Yeah, we can get to the JobKeeper holes in a minute. Well, I I was like, there's that, but I was also thinking in regards to the price of oil has dropped to below zero at the moment per barrel, which means that everyone who's always had issues with our fuel reserve rightly so, that we never have enough, like we're supposed to have 90 days of fuel reserve and the Australian government says, oh, we have six weeks at all times. That's six weeks and the majority of that is offshore or on tankers, which if a real crisis happens, can be diverted away from Australia. So the government rightly said, all right, well, we can build up our fuel reserve. But now they've said, oh, we're going to store it in the US. Yeah, like (laughs) most of our oil comes from closer than that. Why, how is it secure in the US? Good idea executed in the worst possible way. Yeah, we're spending $94 million on this reserve to be stored on the other side of the Pacific where we wouldn't be able to access it in a crisis, making it entirely worthless. Also, I'm not sure why it's costing us $94 million when oil is, what, minus, minus $40 a barrel or something? Doesn't that mean that we could take it oh. and we'd be paid for it? Well, the issue I've been told is it's going to be... Well, the issue I've heard is it's, it's going to be stored in the US for the time being, because we don't have appropriate storage facilities in Australia. Well, if we're meant to have a fuel reserve, why didn't we have those storage facilities already? Hmm. Well, I mean, I suppose we can't... We, we can't blame this government. They've only been in power for seven years. Oh, well, oh, the, well, the, yeah, well, we probably can't. The, the other issue is when we were... When the government was seriously considering storing nuclear waste in Australia from other countries, certain sites in South Australia were deemed appropriate. Surely they'd be fine for fuel storage. Well, probably the same problems apply, but <laughs> sure. Like, I'm not sure that the people who were fine with doing that are the same people who are suggesting that we should be doing this. So I've got a, I've got more of a problem with the radioactive waste being stored than I do if I was actually storing oil somewhere. But anywho, it does match, doesn't it? So we've got the government deciding that it's going to store our strategic oil reserves where we can't access it strategically. And simultaneously, the data that they're t- trying... I don't even know why they bother trying to tell us that it's definitely secure. We've, you know, we've, what did they say this morning? They've already knocked back some requests from Australian Peter Dutton's department, basically, about a bunch of the police agencies trying to get access to the, the um, data when, it, when it's um, collected. So they can't provide this thing as a service to the public without Peter Dutton's department trying, trying to use it as a power grab. 
even if the government says no, we, we, we're saying we, we've refused that. Well, it doesn't take much for them to change their mind at any point in the future, and they've already got the data. Um, because, if, again, they're keeping all our metadata for many, many years. Yeah. And also they've passed those laws, making it impossible for us to find out if they did put it back to orbit. So there's no basis for us trusting them. And then on top of that, they're going to store it, the actual data, in the US, where, where the US government can specifically look at it. The US government has already passed laws that they can look at anything. US law enforcement, I think, was even it was even more specific. So it would be agencies like uh, terrestrial, uh, the police departments, sheriff's departments, the FBI. Yeah. And why exactly would any Australian want to be giving more data to them than we already do by having our phones on? But apart from the fact that we've already given them all that data anyway, why would we want to give them any more? No, it's, it's, it's a crazy idea. I love their whole... But they've basically set themselves up. Like, it is staggering to me that they think that they can turn to us and be like, it's okay, we care about your privacy, trust us, after the last seven years of doing everything in their power, to collate every bit of information they can about us, stop us finding out about it. Like, we can see that they did this. We would have to be pretty dumb to trust their assurances now. Oh, absolutely. So Turnbull this week has been trying to launch uh, his book. So the man, well, while we're talking about our uh, data security and such, the, the man who gave us the shitty NBN that we're trying to record this podcast over now has his book. And he unloads on a bunch of people in, in ways that I think are fairly galling. The bits where he's talking about how you know Peter Dutton's African gang's uh, racist shit. Oh, I probably should have stopped that, and that Peter Dutton was definitely not uh, qualified for the role. Oh, I had some concerns. Basically, there's an awful lot of stuff in there, Brandon, that appears to be, yeah, I knew all of these people that I was giving power over everyone in the country. I knew that this this lunatic Peter Dutton, who I was making giving this massive home affairs department and collating all of the police forces and security agencies and all of this power in the hands of this one man, yeah, no, I knew that he was a bit of a menace as I did that. But now I can talk about it. Thanks, you incompetent boob. Yeah, well, it does It does really highlight what a political coward he was, that he's only talking about this now. If he had been talking about it while he was actually in power, maybe cutting them off at the pass, then he might still be Prime Minister. Who knows? Yeah, well, even if he wasn't talking about it, if he was just... If that was his judgment, which, of course, is clearly an accurate judgment, he didn't have to com- combine everything into a giant home affairs department for Peter Dutton. He didn't have to give him more power. Like, yeah, but if you're going to follow the Yes Minister script book, you've got to create a super ministry. That has to happen. I, I can think of many ways in which it would have been better if Malcolm Turnbull hadn't followed the Yes Minister, Yes Prime Minister book. Well, well, I mean, that's, but that's the thing. I mean, yes, it would be better if they didn't, and yet all governments seem doomed to be doing so. The other part of this week that has been very much Yes Prime Minister is, so if you, I don't know if you recall that there's a Yes Prime Minister episode where, where Hacker's predecessor like Morrison's predecessor, because the parallel is pretty clear, uh, has written a book, uh, a memoir. And the government gets a copy of it ahead of time because they it's a prime minister writing it, so there's some official secret stuff. It has to be cleared by the government sort of thing. I am guessing there's an equivalent here, which is how the government got it in the first place, I'm guessing. Anyway, and Hacker is Hacker has previously leaked parts of this book that were, were complementary to him. Uh, but... There comes a chapter where Hacker is uh, described as a complete idiot, by a complete coward by uh, his predecessor. And Hacker wants that book, that part of the book, suppressed. It doesn't want it to see the light of day because it's not in the country's best interests for the leader to be uh, criticised in this way in his head, um, which is, again, very much Scummo. And I had some audio of Scummo basically equating himself with the country. I said on election nightly 
that the election result was actually about not the Liberal Party or me, or it was about them. But yes, Hacker clearly thought that way. And so he tries to get that part of the book suppressed, which leads to uh, Bernard Woolley being uh, interrogated uh, by, the, by the press and, and giving those the, the way, eight ways to avoid difficult questions. Things. It's, it's, there's a lot of really heady stuff in that episode. But the book gets leaked. And it gets leaked. Ultimately, it got leaked by a, um, a staffer from another minister who's described in the chapter very positively and, and uh, wanted it to get out. But Hacker demands a leak inquiry, despite the fact that he's previously leaked another chapter of the book. He wants to find the leaker. Anyway, my point is, the parallels this week as the government leaks this book ahead of time, like, but in this case, not so much to um, get the information out in it, but more to give it to their mates in the Murdoch press to try and squash it. And also just out of, as an act of malice to try and undermine the publisher and oh, to, like, yeah. harm Turnbull commercially. It was yeah. just... So, so the, you saw the photograph of Morrison in Hawaii, which we all saw. Mm. It's like supposedly these Aussies he met on the beach. And it turns out one of those is one of his staffers. Yeah, it was a staffer. He leaked the book, yeah. And it just seems like a really dumb idea to try and go up against Turnbull, anything publishing related. I mean, he made his name as a barrister because of the Spycatcher case, which was about publishing of a book and suppression of publisher, of the publishing of that book. Yeah, So, although this is more a copyright thing, and I don't... I don't think Turnbull had anything to do with copyright. No, no, but uh, this, but it still it still seems like a dumb idea to to pull this sort of pull this sort of move, and so blatantly. I know I know at least one minister publicly said that yes, they'd received a illegal copy of the book and they deleted it as soon as they'd received it. So good on them, but yes. yeah, Maurice Payne. So essentially, now that's fine. It's going to be really easy to get her in a witness box and cross-examine her. Yes. She's admitted that she got it. Who sent it to you? <laughs> who sent it to you? We know who sent it. We know who sent it. Well, we assume we know who sent it. Well, I think they're trying to find out that it spread further than the 59 copies um, that were sent out. Of course it did. Of course it did. I, I'll, I will just say I haven't seen a copy, nor have I looked for a copy. To be fair, I actually don't want to read the book. So, Oh, God, no. It's, surprising. it's supposedly selling reasonably well, which is bizarre for a political memoir. Well, and I don't know who, who at this point likes... Apart from the, the Canberra Media Press Gallery, who still have a weird thing for Turnbull, who likes Turnbull? The right hate him. We still hate him. Who are the centrist idiots who like Turnbull apart from the Canberra Press Gallery? Uh, I have no polite response to that. <laughs> oh, no, I, I, I just staggered to imagine anybody paying money for... Uh, and it's so, he's such a... He doesn't have any insight... Um, it would be such an infuriating tome. So, okay, sure, he'll unload on a bunch of the current government, which mm. I imagine is why some people will be reading it, because, yeah, okay, I suppose the value in the book is the people that he'll be unloading on mm. are still in power. Mm. And he will be saying things about them that presumably are useful for us to know. They're pretty galling because all of his critical judgments of them uh, come in the context where he promoted these dickheads. He gave them more power. And... And I love the real politic thing of, well, he had to do that because otherwise they'd turn on him. Well, I don't know, Trumbull. If, you, if you're doing something positive, if you actually, like... And this is the thing that infuriates me about the ALP as well. Decide why you're there and push for it. And if you lose, you lose. But at least you did your best to try and get to achieve something that, that you wanted to achieve. The Trumbull's thing was even more stupid than Gillard. Because Gillard took over in a, in a context where... You know how she signed up with the right and agreed to do a whole lot of shit that was completely contrary to her her background and the reason why she was popular in the first place? So she took on the job because they needed they needed her, but she let them tie her down at the beginning. And Turnbull did the same thing. He took over from Abbott 
because the he was Abbott was cratering. But Turnbull could have waited a few more weeks, so so could Gillard, and done it and been like, okay, you guys are coming to me, I'll do the job, but I'm not going to be, you know, pandering to cranks on the far right because if I do everything that I have to offer will immediately crumble. I'm here because I'm not seen as being a puppet of the far right. That's why I've got the popularity. You've got your puppet of the far right, um, Abbott, and he's falling to pieces. So mm. if you want me to do it, I'll do it. But I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be your lackey. Like the one. The reason he's there was not because they liked him. He was there because they needed him. That was the point to extract. You know the 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 the, the terms of of the engagement, and not to let them put these terms that made it completely impossible on him. And yet. He wanted. It just confirms that he and Gillard just wanted power more than they wanted to actually do anything positive. Yeah, I can't really remember in regard to Gillard. My memory's just gone. But yeah, Turnbull was definitely in it for the power and the self-aggrandizement. It seems. So this memoir does really seem to be a way of getting the narrative straight in his own mind, if that makes sense to the public. It would be so infuriating to read because it would be okay. So this hearing him unload on his former colleagues that would be mildly satisfying. But hearing him trumpet his own bullshit lines on things like marriage equality and the NBN would just be infuriating. I, uh, no. uh, sorry, you'd have, this is it's like, it's like the uh, oil price for me. You'd have to pay me to read that book. And, and reasonably, you would have to... Like, that, that book would be you know, minus 40 barrels, you know, $40 a barrel for me easily. Minus $100 a barrel, basically. You, you, would, you would... Yeah. I don't, don't. I assume that his book doesn't actually come in barrel form, but you would need to pay me for it. Is my point? Yes, a lot. I, I can't think of anything that would be, be, be more infuriating to read. Well, no, I can think of something that would be more infuriating to read. Um, Barnaby Joyce's, um, which is which would like collapse completely as soon as he released his memoir, which is great. All right, we'd probably better touch in on both the uh, job keeper and the job seeker payment issues from this week too. So first things first, Scummo has come out and said that uh, the job seeker payment will be cut after the pandemic. So, like, let's be clear. He has admitted by by saying that they will raise, and of course, people haven't got the money yet. But saying that they will effectively double for the um, payment for unemployed people who became unemployed for this reason, as opposed to people who've come employed unemployed for any other reason. But yeah, so in this period, because it's not, they've recognised effectively that the job, you know, the new start is not enough to live on. It is simply not enough to live on. That's why they had to increase it as soon as more people were having to try and living live on it, because then more people would be going. Oh, shit. Uh, I can't live on this. I'm going to kick you out. Uh, but when it goes back down in their mind to uh, smaller numbers of people when, when the economy starts to pick up again, they're just going to slash it and, and make people starve on the old payment again. He's out here saying, I believe that you have a theory on this, which is that this is actually a politically suicidal thing for him to do. I mean, I'd, I'd like to hear it. I'd like to hear you say it. I'd like to... I want to be convinced. I want to be convinced. I, I fear that... I fear that uh, kicking poor people, which is what, of course, this is, even after admitting that, that, that effectively the payment is so far below subsistence you can't live on it, I feel like that is the sort of thing that should have an electoral consequence, particularly when even after this pandemic is officially over, you know, there's still going to be some lag and so there's going to be many more people on the payment you know, who are unemployed than there were at the beginning of it. I'd like to think that that was electorally dangerous. Please, Brandon, convince me. Well, I do. Like when you, you and I first discussed this, I think the first thing I did say to you was like, "Well, he's just handed the next election to whoever he's up against." Basically, the it was always going to be the concern that they would try and wind back payments and basically the status quo to what it was before this pandemic. But hmm. the genies well, no, 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 more than that. They're also trying. They're also trying to cut like yeah. 
workers' conditions. They're actually oh. trying to use the pandemic to, you know, raise the GST, do a bunch of other, you know, justify more company tax rights. Yeah, do a bunch of stuff that they said prior to the election was not going to be on the table. But now, oh, well, this pandemic's changing. We need to review these things. To be fair... They do need to review a lot of these things, but just probably not in the way they want to do it. No, the opposite way. They're, they're, they're not going to waste a crisis. Doing a good thing in the worst possible way. No, 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 no. They will do a bad thing. They're going to do bad things in the worst way. Reforming the tax system needs to be done. They will do it in the worst possible way, oh. I'm sure. Uh, industrial relations reform needs to happen. They will do it in the worst possible okay, so way. If, you, if you're broadly defining that, that, that there are categories that need to be reviewed... Uh, Yes, they will do that. Yes, and that, that if you're going to broadly yeah. define that as a good thing, but I, yeah, no, there, there mm. are there are two directions to go. They will pull it. They will use this crisis to make everything worse, because that's who they yes. are. Now, bringing in uh, upping the job payment was look, it had to happen again. They did it in the worst possible way, but at least it was done, and with very very little complaint from the uh, normal pundits you would otherwise hear from. If Bill Shorten had miraculously won the last election and then this pandemic had happened and he had tried to raise a job, raise payments under these circumstances, we would be hearing a cacophony of protests from the oh. usual pundits. So this whole thing really has a only Nixon could go to China vibe about it. Only a conservative could bring in these kind of policies. But the genie's out of the bottle. And if you want to be really cynical, you could argue that they raised the payments because they realised they were going to lose a lot of their voter base who'd lost their jobs anyway. Or lost their livelihoods anyway, so of course they, of course they had to support them because they were going to discover that oh shit, this is already way too little and you can't live mm. on it. Oh shit, oh shit. Yeah, yeah. Now of course they were always going to try and reduce the payments. We knew that was going to happen. One one hope I would have is well the genie's out of the bottle. You can't shove it back in there. Enough people would protest because now they realise. But you were going to see a media and advertising offensive about how they have to reduce payments and that everything's going to be all right in regards to that. And it'll be interesting to see how many people buy it. But, you know, a lot of people bought franking credits at the last election as well. So. Sorry, what, what kind of advertisement, what kind of advertising campaign do they run about why the poor need to be... be Starved. I can't even imagine that I, as an advertising campaign. I, I can see it as a thing they do, and they argue it in the um, you know the News Corp tabloids. But I can't see them having you know that. Okay. They'll be pushing austerity has to happen. It'll be it'll be like it's been in the UK for the past ten years. They'll be going with the austerity argument that we need to wind things back. I mean the other nightmarish option that we've heard rumors that they're considering a robo debt version two to try and get money off people you keep the payments at the level that they are but you institute a new robo debt program to target those people who probably maybe shouldn't have gotten such high payments during the pandemic and get repayments from them well did you see the other thing the way that job keeper is being mm. massively rotted by by the company so instead again the idea of uh, a payment to help companies keep employing people to mm. keep the jobs going, basically yeah. subsidising workers' wages. Yeah. Subsidising workers' wages so they can keep being employed, not a bad yeah. idea. But of yeah. course they did it in the worst possible, possible way. way. And so you've got all these companies that are refusing to that are refusing to apply for something, choosing which workers they'll apply for and which ones they'll yeah. just sack malevolently. Yeah. It's this government's instinct is always we must not give anything to the people we hate, and that is Workers on low wages, yeah. and you know the poor generally. Mm. Uh, those people can't be trusted with with payments. Those people, are, if they mm. get money, they're bludging scumbags. Whereas if we give it to the deserving people, like mm. entrepreneurs and job creators, mm. those people would never use the money mm. poorly. 
these people deserve extra money. Well, the same thing. The same thing is actually happening in the US. There's the uh, pay, there's the there was the the loans that were being given to small businesses to help them in regards to staying afloat during the pandemic. But the money wasn't going through any government agency. It was going through the banks, and the banks, particularly, I believe it was the Bank of America, initially wasn't giving these loans to anybody who wasn't already a customer of their bank. Right. <laughs> I believe they've I believe they've wound that back now, but it would have made more sense to put those kind of payments through something like the US Postal Service, which has access to everybody and wouldn't uh, have any of those kind of uh, competing interests in regards to it. So again, good ideas executed in the worst possible way. And it's not an accident. It's that's not even a competence issue. That is a well, I mean there there is a competence issue. Oh no, it's deliberate. It's a malevolent it's a well, it's a value <laughs> issue. They in the same way as yeah. well, it's a value issue. It's like oh, we trust these are our these are our people. They'll do the right thing. Well, no, they won't. No, and and I don't know how how many examples we have to see of them not like <laughs> landlords are not the, the the whole thing with landlords originally oh. was going oh no, but tenants uh, like, should just negotiate <sighs> with their landlords like they, no. but not in the commercial sphere. We we know that in the commercial sphere. Yeah. But we'll keep doing it because you know trickle econ- trickle down economics, which was a thing, which was a thing since you know Reagan in the eighties. We'll keep saying, "Oh, this time it'll work." We've been saying that for nearly forty years at this point. Well, they have. They've been claiming it has never worked. No. Well, they have. Yes, they have. Yeah. Well, yeah. No. They have, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, despite you know numerous experts, despite the IMF saying this doesn't work. Yet they persist. But you saw the different treatment of commercial tenants from you know, residential tenants. Like in the case of commercial tenants, the government recognised that because they can put themselves in the minds of commercial tenants. They're like, oh well, no, we need to put in more more solid things to protect uh, their interests. But residential tenants, well, they're the the dirty scumbags that we don't care about. You know, that's nothing new either, sadly. No, but it's still appalling, and you can see every every one. But the, that the problem is that when when you have people in government who have those prejudices, and those people in government are determining how services necessary services are delivered, it then has these horrific impacts it doesn't work because they don't have the empathy for the people that they're affecting mm, no no sorry i'm just laughing because i've just seen a tweet from peter dutton a completely unrelated topic queensland could should be should be back at school and the only reason they're not is because the premier is running scared of the militant queensland teachers union premier premier anastasia palaszczuk it's time to put the interests of our queensland kids ahead of the union bosses yes the a famously militant group of lawless dirtbags, teachers. Well, you, yeah. you know that teachers are always trying to stop children going to school. <laughs> classic teacher, classic teacher move there. <laughs> like teachers unions don't want to have children at schools. <sighs> Madness. Yeah, no, just I've been given another thing by Simone. Um, National cabinet has agreed to a set of COVID nineteen safe workplace principles. It's all about getting Australians back to work and ensuring that they, when they go back to work and their families can feel safe, Scott Morrison said. It's to ensure that there are important principles in place and that there are protocols and procedures that should a COVID-19 case present in a workplace and the rules that people need to follow. Following that, on schools, Scott Morrison said the four square metre rule and 1.5 metre distancing between students during classroom activities is not appropriate and not, not required. I can't be more clear than that. The advice cannot be more clear than that. The 1.5 metre rule in classrooms and the four square metre rule is not a requirement of the expert medical advice in classrooms. I mean, that makes perfect sense. That's, uh, yeah, because viruses know whether they're in an educational environment or not, and so they know not to spread when they're... I mean, it's just not, it's just not on. And I think COVID-19 knows that schools are not the place to do it. To be fair, the viruses also, the, the viruses also know if they're not in a superior courtroom environment or not. 
but that's another story. What do you mean? Well, in higher courts, there haven't in some higher courts there haven't been the uh, social there hasn't been the as strict social distancing as in the lower courts. Oh, okay. Which is weird. It's, I mean, that's been a big part of it too. Like, it's very hard. Mm. A big part of the problem that, that Australia faced going into this, um, and we're fortunate that we've come through as well as we have so far. Although I do fear when when uh, Morrison's talking about how he's uh, liaising with Donald Trump and uh, <laughs> what what a great uh, rapport they have on the subject. That's a bit scary, and also while he's pushing so hard to reopen things, when you know we don't have a vaccine, we don't have we've we've flattened the curve, but you know it's like the 1918 Spanish flu. The the secondary wave was vastly worse than the first wave. Like, we're not out of the woods. Point, the point being that the secondary waves can be quite deadly, and so it's a bit worrying that. Mm. And a big part of this has come down to the mixed messaging from Morrison the whole way through, where he's like, you know, from the very beginning, oh, you, you should you should socially distance, but you know, crowds of up to five hundred are fine. <laughs> you know, oh, he, well, it, that's the thing; they're all congratulating themselves on flattening the curve. But the thing is, the curve got flattened because people were staying at home, while the government was saying, "No, it's fine to go to the football." Yeah, part that's right. Partly us not trust. You know, our lack of trust in Morrison kind of helped us. <laughs> But the problem is that it's like in like in America, like there's a part of the population that recognizes that Morrison is a bullshit artist and doesn't trust him, and so made made their own decisions and stayed home. But then there's another part that trusts him and is like, cool, I can do what I like. Um, and then and it's same in America, you have the situation where you know huge chunks of America, like 70 percent of the population, like majority of Republican voters are also accept that they should stay home. But then you've got you know these, these other crank, everybody who's listening to Trump, who's just like. No, no, you should be out there and it's out. And they're having actual, I mean, the protest, the idea that people are out there fighting for their right to be outside and spreading disease. It's- well, it's, it's more than fighting. It's more, it's, more than, it's more than fighting for the rights for people they want to go back to work to go back to work so they can get a haircut, so they can go to a restaurant, so they can go to movies. But yeah. one thing that was not covered as widely as it really should have been was I think about a week, two weeks ago, the governor of California basically said, no, all right, well, we'll do this on our own. And basically was ignoring the edicts of the federal government. And that's a democratic state and the biggest economy in the US. So they basically said, yeah, hmm. we're essentially ignoring ignoring the union. That was a big deal and it got very little media coverage. And the thing is, the whole Western seaboard, basically, of the United States, they're all democratic governors from California up, except Alaska, of course, but yeah. But, um, but yeah. then you've got the federal government in America hmm. taking, all the, taking all the masks and the ventilators. Yep. You saw the thing, they're seizing all the supplies before they could get out there. And then you've got, you've got the Las Vegas mayor yeah. saying... They're seizing all the PPA, giving it to um, private companies to sell to hospitals, to the highest bidder. And as you were saying, yeah, the 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 deputy mayor or the mayor of uh, Las Vegas. I was saying that she was happy to have Las Vegas open as a, as a test case, and she was asked specifically if she'd be down there, down there uh, exposing herself, and she's like, "Oh no, I have a family." <laughs> oh. um, well, I mean, but it's 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 thinking like that. I mean, Australia has basically got the um, spread of the virus down to like one point one. So if you catch it, you may infect one other person. In the US, I think it's five, and in Spain and Italy, it's seven. But again, it's really hard to tell because the testing is not really there. Like, mm. there are plenty of people who haven't got tested because it's the testing is really difficult yeah. to access. Yeah. And you're probably, if you don't have it, you're exposing yourself by going and getting mm. it because you've got to sit around in an emergency yeah. room. Oh, yeah. So even if you're, if you're a bit concerned, like, what do you do? Do you, 
I mean, you, you can go and get tested, but... Yeah, I've got it wrong. It's not, it's not the infection rates, it's the mortality rates. It's, in Australia, it's 1.1% of those who contract COVID-19 die from it. In the USA and France, it's 5.5% of infected people dying of, dying of it. In the UK and Italy, it's 7.4%. Is that taking into account? Because there was a thing that the, the um, Trumpers are, are running pretty hard on it, like, which is that the New York did some testing and found that like 14% of the population had um, previ- had antibodies, which suggested that they had had it and recovered from it already. And so the Trumpers side is going, well, see, look, so the numbers are actually really huge, but the deaths are fairly low. The, the death rate is therefore lower comparatively. But that, that also assumes that your death rate is being measured accurately the, 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 in connection with the, the virus and that you're not... Yeah, which which we know it's not. There's a whole bunch of there's a whole bunch of cases, uh, or there's a whole bunch of more of of um, deaths that are occurring that aren't being attributed to the virus, which arguably should be. I think at least in Spain, look at one thing I was looking at. There's been a, another seven thousand deaths above the normal mortality rate uh, that they have not attributed to the virus, but maybe attributed to it. They just don't know. Well, that's probably the place to end it. Uh, thank you, Brandon, for coming back to discuss. Uh, the general horrors of what's going on in this grim time. Uh, where can people find you on the tubes? You can find me on Twitter at Brandon underscore Selick. That's B-R-A-N-D-O-N underscore S-E-L-I-C. That's pretty much where all I am online at the moment. Oh, people can find us to discuss things with at Well May We Say uh, on the Twitters. That's probably a good place to find us and chat with us. Uh, we'd like to thank uh, all of our Patreon subscribers for keeping the podcast going. You are how that it keeps going on from month to month, and uh, even and particularly helpful in this grim time when it's uh, it has been difficult getting getting the podcast recorded. Uh, not not just because uh, Brandon lives in remotest Queensland, where the NBN apparently drops out every afternoon when we try to record. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, we'd like to thank you very much. We've got a new Patreon subscriber this week, Megan. Thank you for coming on board, Megan. Very much appreciated. Thank you to everybody who's left us a positive review on iTunes, and thank you to Robin Gray for the music and Alex Lum for the artwork. Thank you for coming back, and we will see you all next week. Bye. Bye.